This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hi, I'm Chris Wildeman. I am your usual host here on Doing Translational Research um, and director of the Bronfenbrenner Center here at Cornell University. I'm here with Karen Levy. Um, who I went to graduate school with and didn't see often there and now work at Cornell with and don't see often here. <laughs> so um, I've been successfully avoiding her until this podcast or vice versa, I guess. Um, Karen's an assistant professor in the Department of Information Science here at Cornell. Um, and she's also an associate member of the faculty of the Cornell Law School, whatever that means. Um, her research is, is really sort of focused on surveillance, or at least that's the thing that I associate with it maybe incorrectly no, that's, um, good. that's right and she sort of thinks about how surveillance works in a bunch of different components um, with special attention on sort of big data e sort of stuff she's nodding affirmatively mm-hmm. she might just be nice um, so now that I've butchered your research <laughs> interests and dragged you all the way across campus can you um, can you just tell me a little bit about sort of how you think about your main research interests and, and how you sort of move through those different spaces? Sure, sure. So I so my background is in sociology, like you, and in law. So I tend to... Not like me. Not like you. So I tend to approach technology. I'm interested in the social and legal implications of technology and the ethical implications because those often fold in with the social and legal implications. So yeah, like you said, I'm mostly interested in surveillance technology and in privacy, just in the idea that we tend to gather more information about people in day-to-day life. And I have mostly focused that research, I've done stuff in a bunch of different domains, but mostly I'm interested in kind of like day-to-day, almost mundane-seeming context. So I've done a lot of stuff on work in the workplace, and then a bunch of stuff on family and just the way that people monitor each other, like in households and in love relationships and sex relationships and things like that. So what are some examples from the from the romantic relationships? Start there. We'll yeah, start just there. to, I mean, listen, we got to get our listeners into that. <laughs> exactly, just pull them in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so, so, um, so I've done some writing. One of the pieces I did was with my colleague Luke Stark um, called The Surveillant Consumer. And that piece kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the way I think about this stuff. So a lot of what Luke and I wrote about was the idea that, you know, we sometimes think about surveillance as this, like, kind of top-down, like the man or the government or the corporation, but that oftentimes people, like people are surveillors, right? Like we sell a lot of surveillance products to consumers and people watch each other a lot in day-to-day life and often in like, you know, in the context of care relationships, right? Like you gather information about people as a way to manage, you know, your day-to-day household relationships, as a way to take care of your loved ones, maybe especially if that loved one is like vulnerable, like a child or an elderly family member or something like that. And then I've also done some work um, with partners here at NYU about um, different ways in which technology manifests in intimate partner relationships, including like abuse and violence, Mm. Um, but also in just much more like typical day to day, you know, find my find like figure out what time your partner's coming home so you can just know that, right? Like checking somebody's accounts like as just a way of, you know, maybe taking care of them or. You know, so it's all kind of about like this sort of fuzzy line between what we normalize as surveillance practice and then like what we think of as crossing the line. 
So what are the things that you would think of as crossing the line? Or what do, what do people <laughs> think of as crossing the line? And not the domestic violence stuff. Yeah, I mean, like that pretty obviously crosses yeah. the line. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so, so some of the work I've been doing recently is with a gerontologist um, at the University of Washington. Her name is Clara Barrage. Um, and I've learned a lot from Clara. So she has done a bunch of work on um, nursing homes, on residents of nursing homes. And then so she and I um, worked on a couple of papers where we looked at how, pe- how families um, will put webcams in their elderly relatives' rooms. And that, like, I, I'm not, like, staking a claim that that is or, is or isn't, like, a practice that one should engage in. Like, I try and remain pretty neutral about that. But that's the kind of the kind of case, I think, where there's, like, a very obvious argument for why you would want to do that, right? Like, you're trying to protect your relative. A lot of, ti- a lot of people who live in nursing homes have dementia or have trouble communicating. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you, like, might want, you know, to be able to look in on them, right, to be able to watch over them. But then there are also some really significant privacy concerns also related to the fact that people in vulnerable places, like, often can't communicate or can't communicate their consent. Oftentimes, you know, the people who are consenting on behalf of an elderly relative are the same people that are also surveilling them, right? So it's this kind of funny situation where, you know, the workers in the nursing home or the roommate in the nursing home, right, there's a lot of privacy interests that, you know, are threatened sometimes by choosing to provide care in that way. So, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, the issues I'm most attracted to are the ones I think that are kind of equivocal. Like I'm act- I actually have done like very little on like Facebook is gathering all your data or like the NSA is watching you. Like I think that it's really important that those people are true are- though, right? Yeah, those are, are true, those okay. but it's like, those are kind of easy cases. I think from my perspective, like, like they're good and it's fine. <laughs> that wasn't it. Um, but you know what I mean? Like it's pretty easy to take a sign. Um, and I find myself more attracted to cases where like the surveillance is happening for reasons that, you know, many of us would find quite justifiable and trying to untangle the privacy interests there, I think is much more interesting. How do you, how do you think about that? I guess I've been, <clears throat> I mean, I've been thinking about it a bit within the context of the workplace, because I guess mm-hmm. Cornell has strengthened the background check guideline or oh, something like that. I don't know like that. that. No, I think so. Carrie, Carrie is nodding to, to Carrie say says that. yes. Yeah. Anyway, I I just I guess what what sources of data should we feel okay about our employers having and what things should give us pause maybe or or where where's that line where it's interesting within this context? In a way that doesn't get you in trouble with Cornell. (laughs) Are you trying to sabotage me? (laughs) No, I know. (laughs) So, I mean, the thing is, like, this is often what is said about kind of the turn towards, particularly towards AI and big data, right, is that, like, it's actually very difficult to say, like, well, this category of data is sensitive and thus off limits, right, which is the way we kind of used to do it. And, like, this is fine, right? Like, this is some mundane, like, germane piece of information about, like, what somebody likes on Facebook or something, right? And what we now know is that, like, when the scale of the data and the computational power is powerful enough, pretty much anything can be either identifying or just sensitive, right? Can tell you stuff about people that they may not have wished to reveal. So I don't think actually think you can say, like, oh, well, you know, sexual orientation, no, but this other thing, yes, right? Like, it's, I don't think it's so clear-cut. And I don't know that, like, law and policy or even popular understanding has really caught up with that reality that, like, you know, there is no line anymore if there was one to begin with. And that's just because the combination of factors is so extensive that even if everything seems totally innocuous that... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, not my research, but there's a lot of research by other folks demonstrating 
that, yeah, like how much sensitive information you can infer about people based on like totally boring seeming pieces of information. And it's just because like we're so good now at building behavioral profiles based on inference. I like that argument from an ethical perspective, but not from a data access perspective. <laughs> but we're just not going to delve into that okay, too we'll much. We'll leave that on the yeah, table. Yeah, we'll just. Yeah, we're not going to solve I, these problems today. I said it out loud. Hopefully, nobody will remember <laughs> it. Then we'll move on. So, the, I guess one thing that seems really. I mean, I just thought it would be fun to have an excuse to hang out since we. I know, done since that. we're avoiding each other. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. Um, but the, the, the thing that was sort of intellectually interesting to me, especially within the context of BCTR, mm-hmm. is thinking about how you engage with the organizations that you're working with in these domains. So, I, I mean, if you could just talk about sort of one example or how you think sure. about it more broadly, that's great. But yeah. if there are a couple examples, that's cool too. Yeah. Um, there's maybe a couple things. So, so one thing is that, so here at Cornell, I work with a group of like a research group that is called the AI Policy and Practice Initiative um, that's based at uh, Computing and Information Science. Um, and it's a bunch of different people from CS and law and policy and social science and just a bunch of different students and faculty working together who are all interested in like how AI-driven decision-making is implemented in practice. And so a lot of that research has been you know, directed towards like what is it that municipalities are doing when they decide to deploy you know, AI in some criminal justice context or benefits provision context or something like that. And so that's been really cool because it's given us the opportunity to like really talk to those people. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had a workshop in June that was like a closed door workshop. So I won't talk about the specific groups, but um, but it was that kind of context, right, where it was a very candid conversation about like what is difficult and, you know, it, it, it really opened my eyes, I think, to like how difficult it is to implement these tools in practice and to know that they're imperfect and to implement them anyway, right, and to try to make the best of it. Like that was really interesting to me because I think oftentimes sort of the critical take on technology is like, oh, well, it's biased and it's terrible and like all surveillance is evil, right? And like I'm not apologizing for it, but it is, I mean, when you like get in the weeds of actual implementation, you learn like a lot about how challenging it actually is to deal with those things in the wild. And then the other place I think where I've dealt the most with, like, I don't know if this counts as community partners, but I think it does, um, is that in the labor context, I've done a bunch of work on truck drivers and the way truckers are. That counts. That counts. Okay. Yeah. Community partners broadly defined to include everything. <laughs> in that case, it's in. Um, so I did, a, like, a, for my dissertation work, like, ages ago now, I did a bunch of work with truckers and with the firms they worked for and regulators and insurers and all these folks who are involved in the trucking industry. I was trying to understand, like, how information gathering technology is deployed there and how it affects the industry and the way people feel about their jobs and things like that. Um, and that was really, I got to say, like, there, the community involvement was super humbling. Like, nobody had prepared me in graduate school. Maybe they prepared you. But nobody prepared me in graduate school for, like, what it would be like to like experience the generosity of people giving you their time for like no good reason. Mm. You know, it was really amazing that like, like now what you're doing like this. <laughs> yeah. For example. <laughs> no, but do you know what I mean? Like you just go and you're like, Hey, I have like pretty much nothing to offer you. Can you tell me your story for the next like two hours? And people like very often will do it. Right. Or like, you know, you'll say, will you let me come ask a bunch of dumb questions around your trucking company for a couple days? Not everyone says yes, but a lot, like a surprising number of people say yes, and they're super, super, super kind and like 
yeah, I don't know. I never realized, I think, before that experience how much of social science depends on just, like, the generosity of regular people. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's why I stopped doing qualitative work, because I'm not that <laughs> likable, so I think I've got Yeah, maybe we stuck. learned something about you and your personality. Yeah, no, I know. Exactly. Um, so what are the... I mean, I hate to ask you about your dissertation research because no, it feels fine. like a job interview now. But like, what are I the... already have the job. So <laughs> you <we're okay>. do. <laughs> so, what are the what are what were sort of the kind of two or three take home messages from the dissertation work? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm writing a book about it now, so it's actually like quite front of mind for me still. Um, the take home messages. I think probably the biggest one, and this is maybe generalizable to a lot of my research, is that oftentimes. Um, Oftentimes people will like deploy an information gathering system, like a surveillance system, as like kind of a technological solution to a problem that is not technological in nature, Mm. right? Like very commonly, like a social problem or an economic problem, we sort of try to address through like a tech fix, right? Because it's cheaper and it's, you know, easier to deal with than like maybe dealing with the underlying issue. And that like almost never is successful, right? Like you, I mean, sort of obviously when you think about it. Um, but in the trucking stuff, right, like a lot of, without going into like a bunch of detail about like the specifics of the work, that was basically what was happening. They were like, well, all these people are like violating the law. Let's just like watch them really closely to make sure they can't do that anymore. But if you don't impact the incentives people have for doing that, the fact that they're doing that to like put food on the table, mm. then like you're not actually mm. making life any better for people. Right. And I think that is pretty generalizable to a lot of tech deployments is that like, you can do it well, but the way to do it is like in recognition and in concert with other things that like affect, you know, the material consequences of people's lives, right? Like the the context in which they actually live. You can't just like stick it on top and be like everything's okay now. Yeah, I mean that's certainly what folks say about sort of big data and the criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, because you could design this really great algorithm like predictive system right <clears throat> yeah but if it doesn't if it's just a stand-in for information that you should actually be gathering through some other mm-hmm. real avenue then mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah. well that's exciting how far along is the book no bad question <laughs> never mind strike it's, that it's a couple of years overdue to the book <laughs> oh really so i don't know i don't know how to count that yeah it, so it's, it's almost done along. it's almost done almost done almost done we should hold this podcast as long as possible <laughs> embargo <laughs> yeah no exactly in 18 months we will release it this. is very close to being done it has to be very close to being done nine months we will release. we'll see we'll see <laughs> okay well, i'll keep exciting. you posted i'll keep your listeners posted okay good yeah we could have like a monthly update karen's book, karen's book still, not still done. <laughs> just one of those websites that just says no <laughs> no <laughs> great um, great yeah, good it's a good self-esteem boost <laughs> so glad i came by no i know sorry <laughs> um so i guess you know i guess the thing that <clears throat> i mean you kind of kind of said this a little, little bit but like i guess i just wonder like What's the optimal way to manage this sort of thing? Like how, well, like how do we, like, okay, so I think about it within the context of the criminal justice system. So Mm -hmm. like, um, we know recidivism rates are high. Um, We know the cost of crime are high, even Mm -hmm. though a bunch of folks who work in my field like to talk as though the cost of crime don't exist. But like, so recidivism rates are high. 
crime rates are high, and we need to somehow figure out what is driving heterogeneity and mm-hmm. recidivism risks. Mm-hmm. So we could, you know, there are a bunch of different avenues we could pursue that. So how should we, what's the what's the best way for us to pursue that knowledge in an era where we do have, you know, big data and oh, fancy computers and capability. Yeah. 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 I mean, so this is the, ain't that the question, you know, like, I don't know that there is like a, if there were an easy answer, I feel like I wouldn't have this job. This is a very lawyerly <laughs> sort of answer to my question. This is really context dependent. <laughs> um, but I think it is right. Like, so I think like the long kind of the long life of these technologies is oftentimes like under emphasized when we're trying to solve a problem, right? Like part of like a lot of people have written this about kind of the data economy is that like sort of the nature of it is that once you have the data, you're like, how else can I make money from this data, right? Or how else can I derive utility from this data? Maybe if it's not, you know, a market context. And like almost always there's like sort of a second act, right? Or a third act to the data. It either gets like sold or, you know, whatever. It's used for something because now you have it. Yeah. So I think it's easy to sort of discount that when you're making an initial decision, right? Mm-hmm. And like that can be really tricky. Like I teach this, I teach a surveillance and privacy class here at Cornell University. And one of the things that we talk about is like, you know, if you collect it, it's almost like pre-commitment, you know, like the Ulysses tied to the mass thing. Like if you don't collect the data, there's no way you're using it later. But if you collect it and you're like, oh, I'm just going to use it for this one thing, the chances that like you change your mind or that, you know, circumstances change or institutions change, like there are lots of contexts in which like governments have used data for one thing that they said they wouldn't use it for. So that's always a consideration. And like, you know, there are ways I think that you can try and deal with that via like retention policies and stuff like that. Um, I feel like I'm just like, I went off on a tangent. No. Was, what was your was, question? Your question was like, how do we deal with this? Yeah. And what, I started talking about Ulysses. Yeah, no, I, I was about to say you that was actually I went real real yeah, far left that on was, that one. That was the that was the first Ulysses <laughs> mention ever on the podcast, Ding. I think. I don't know if Carrie can confirm. Yeah, Carrie Carrie's confirming <laughs> okay, silently good, in good. a somewhat judgy way, I think. No, she loved it. <laughs> she um, loved it. So okay, so To make it maybe more concrete, what do you think, since your book is almost done, Mm -hmm. um, within the trucking context, Mm -hmm. what would, what would the best way to deal with the, the sort of issue you mentioned before have been? So like Mm -hmm. knowing that people are behaving illegally in ways that could put other folks in danger, but mm-hmm. also could have financial implications for the company, mm-hmm. I assume. But then having an incentive system that encourages that sort of behavior, or maybe they yep. feel like even mandates that sort of behavior. Right. Yeah. I mean, so given that like data is often kind of fungible, right, is likely to have utility in lots of different ways. Like one way that some people think about it is like, how could we make this data useful to us, right? Like, what are the data that we could collect that like help to challenge structure like structures of inequality or something, right? Because oftentimes that's not how we think about it. We think about it as like a mechanism to control down, right? But are there ways that people could kind of control up using data, mm-hmm. right? So for like in the trucking context, for example, without going into like a bunch of detail about how the industry works, like one big problem truckers have is what's called detention time, which is that they basically have to wait like super long periods at shippers and receivers and they don't get paid for that time. Mm-hmm. That was never tracked before. Like nobody ever kept that data. And now that, like, every truck has, like, real-time tracking, right, Right. like, real-time GPS, real-time time time stamping of where everybody is, 
there is this, it's not part of the law yet, but there is this discussion that's like, okay, well, now we have this information. We could actually quantify, like, how much we're basically working for free, right? right? And it could be that that's what ends up leading to some change, like, in the labor law or in, like, companies' policies. It hasn't happened yet, right? And it's not, like, a silver bullet. But I think those are the types of things to look for. Like these, some people call it, think of it as like an emancipatory potential that data yeah. has. Like, how is it that we could actually use this to challenge the way things are, and not just to like control people a little bit more? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I totally. Thank I'm sure you. there are things that I, I'm sure I should have thought about something along those lines before. <laughs> but no, it is like an interesting. I mean, especially within the context where like there would be a strong union or there would be right. someone else exactly. representing them who could have the expertise in using the data where you could then, yeah, craft mm-hmm. like a separate set of arguments. Right. I wonder. And it's not like foolproof, right? Like, it's not like you get the data and you're like, aha, down with the man, right? Like, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we have great data about some injustice and it doesn't, it's not enough. Yeah. But that's, I think, where there's some potential. I feel like I should be able to think about a parallel to the criminal justice system, but I can't. So I'm just going to pivot before I embarrass myself. (laughs) We'll edit that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, So what, this has been super fun. Um, Are we done? This was our whole hangout? I think, I mean, we can can talk for like the four minutes before my next meeting after the podcast ends. Um, I had so much more to give. Well, is there, yeah, I was going to say, are there, do you have any sort of, no, that was it. You were like, no, actually, I have nothing. That's kind of it. I'm, I'm no, no. Um, I don't know, actually. Is there anything else that we should talk about? No, I don't think so. I think we're good. Um, so thanks for being on the podcast, getting made fun of, making Carrie vaguely uncomfortable. These are all Just things that day. I enjoy. <laughs> Just another day on doing translational research. Thanks for joining us. It was lovely to be here. Thank you. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.